This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Abolition for the People, The Movement for a Future Without Policing in Prisons, edited by Colin Kaepernick, now available in paperback. Abolition for the People brings together 30 essays from political prisoners, grassroots organizers, scholars, and relatives of those killed by the anti-black terrorism of policing and prisons. Powered by courageous hope and imagination, Abolition for the People provides a blueprint for creating an abolitionist future. Another world is possible, Kaepernick writes, a world grounded in love, justice, and accountability, a world grounded in safety and good health, a world grounded in meeting the needs of the people. As Combahee River Collective co-founder Barbara Smith says of the collection, Kaepernick has assembled a community of visionary thinkers who unequivocally show that the path to freedom requires abolition. Find Abolition for the People at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The fight to control land has been a central conflict throughout human history. Those fights intensified and took on new forms with the rise of capitalism and colonialism. Decolonization, then, became fundamentally a struggle over land, sparking what my guest today, historian Joe Gouldy, calls a long land war that defined the 20th century. That land war decisively shaped the world we live in today, from the masses of peasants displaced into untitled slums of expanding megacities to global north tenants organizing against unchecked landlordism. And it will shape our future as well, a future in which climate catastrophe fuels mass displacement. This is a big-picture interview about Gouldy's very big-picture book, The Long Land War, The Struggle for Global Occupancy Rights. Before we get this podcast rolling, if you are a regular listener, you know this podcast would not exist if dig listeners just like you were not supporting the pod at patreon.com slash the dig. If you contribute at least $10 a month or the annual equivalent, we will send you a book or books, tote bags, or coffee mugs in the mail. That's for listeners located in the United States. For those of you who live elsewhere, we can provide ebooks. And no matter where you live, if you contribute any amount at all, you get our excellent newsletter by email. And now, our newsletter, we're doing something different. Patreon supporters can pose follow-up questions to many of our guests who will then use our newsletter to answer those questions. So please become a Patreon supporter now, ask our guests follow-up questions, but most of all, become a Patreon supporter because that is quite literally what makes this podcast possible. Makes it possible for us to put out every episode paywall-free so that it's available to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. If you can afford to contribute and you are a regular, dedicated listener to this podcast, please contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We put a lot of work into this show. Please hook it up. Okay, 
Here's Joe Gouldy, a professor of quantitative theory and methods at Emory University. She's the co-author of The History Manifesto and then the author of Roads to Power, Britain Invents the Infrastructure State, The Dangerous Art of Text Mining, and the book we're discussing today, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. Joe Goldie, welcome to The Dig. Hi, great to be here. Let's start out with a with an extra big picture meta question about, about your writing and your research. Mm. What is land reform, also mm. known as agrarian reform or land redistribution, or maybe as you phrase it, this, this broader category of the right to occupancy? And then why is that question of land so consequential in terms of political economy and history? And very concretely, just in terms of economic security and political power for poor and working class people all over the world, whether they live in cities or labor on farms. You know, I don't love the term land reform. And actually, I go out of my way in my writing to not invoke it because the word land reform has been used so many times in so many places in polar opposite ways. There's such a thing as free market land reform where you're trying to remove all of the legal barriers to buying and selling a piece of land. And then there are communist land reforms where you're just doing away with private property. So land reform could mean anything that changes the ownership alignments of a place. The kind of land reforms that I'm interested in are those land reforms that make the world more habitable. They work on occupancy rights. And by occupancy rights, I mean the right to occupy a place, the right to inhabit a place, to not be evicted, a right to occupancy. So that's broadly a kind of redistributive land reform in the sense that it often involves questioning the rights of landlords and emphasizing the rights of tenants or people who live in a place. Sometimes occupancy-related land reforms involve thinking about the need for common spaces like sidewalks, public parks, allotment gardens, public housing. Sometimes it involves thinking about the nature of the rental market and how that rental market is set up. Are there protections against eviction? Is there anything like rent control? Can the rent escalate by fivefold every year? Um, Or are there some prohibitions on that? So that big class of, of regulations, I like to think of redistribution. It's redistribution in the sense that it asks some questions about who has rights. Do landlords have rights? which has been the nature of how we design legal property rights in the Anglo-American tradition since the 17th century? Or do we think we live in a world where tenants also have a right not to be displaced, where tenants have a right to some economic share of the bounty that they create in terms of a livable city, a healthy community, a place where people want to live? Is that an economic right? To think about it as an economic right is a kind of redistribution because it's not been valued. But if it's described, then we can value it and we can protect it legally and politically. It's certainly not the same thing as communism. We're strictly talking about one kind of private property, ownership in land, and we're making room for private property that includes the rights of tenants. So 
This is definitely somewhere on the lefty spectrum. It may be a kind of socialism, but it is not the monster of abolishing all kinds of rights of ownership that people on the right most fear. It's something else. And my argument as a historian is that we actually already live. We have been living for 150 years already in an era of tenant rights. It's inscribed in every major legal tradition in the world. And America needs to catch up. People's occupation of land and enforced displacement from land is in a sense timeless. You, you note that more than a million people were forced from their homes during the time of the Assyrian Empire. And, and that in the Middle Ages, the Reconquista expelled hundreds of thousands of Jews and Muslims from Spain. But did the right to land and the violation of that right, did it qualitatively change in some way with the rise of capitalism and modern colonialism? Maybe I'm thinking in terms of the ways that both capitalism and colonialism have both fundamentally depended upon forms of primitive accumulation frequently centered on land, enclosure of the commons, settler colonial genocide, the mining of silver, etc. Yes. As a result of the last three or four decades of work by historians, we now have a pretty good picture of the way that global eviction culture was linked to empire. It was linked to empire in several senses, sometimes through the extension of European-style single-owner proprietorship as the major form of contract around the world, moving with British Empire, French Empire, Spanish Empire around the world. Sometimes it was linked to high rates of taxation, as in India, high rates of taxation rather than land theft, rather than invalidating the native tenure, was the major mode of acquiring property and dispossession in India. Often it was linked to settler culture, so validating contracts which were signed by white owners, by white male owners, sometimes only by Protestants, sometimes the contracts signed by Catholics or Jews, as well as Native peoples or people with brown skin, were automatically in invalidated. So we now have a very broad picture of the way that the property market on a global scale in the centuries of empire was tilted tilted in the hands of a tiny minority, by which we don't just mean white people, we mean the Protestant few, the Protestant elect who happen to be in the right time, in the right place at a certain moment. The uh, Protestant few whose virtue and election was evidenced by their material well-being and success. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's linked to an ideology of improvement, which is a kind of circular logic. If we are elect, then our lands will become fruitful and we'll acquire more money, we'll be able to export produce. We can tell that we are elect because we are acquiring more money, exporting more produce, and our children are wealthier. So therefore, those Roman Catholics over there in Ireland who are not doing such a good job of accumulating property are not the elect. It's a circular kind of reasoning system, but it is, it is very much the basis for how we figure a hierarchy of class as well as race in the modern world. You write, quote, the tempo of enclosure was disrupted by several modern revolutions. To varying degrees, each disruption renewed a cultural conviction of the harm wrought by eviction. Another philosophy began to be articulated. The notion that, in the past, the laws governing land upheld not merely rights of ownership, but also the rights of occupancy. 
what is this alternative philosophy and its history? And, and what's this past that it's looked to for legitimacy? And then how does this alternate philosophy that you're describing, how does it compare to, for example, that, that, that dominant Lockean philosophy that governs capitalist private property relations here in the Anglosphere? So the moment in time that I describe as the long land war is the revolution against European imperial systems of enclosure, against colonization, against land theft. And there's a moment in time at which all of the pain, all of the resistance to European enclosure that we can see in the form of martial struggles, bureaucratic struggles to maintain a hold of native land in places like North America, Australia, the Scottish Highlands or Ireland, all of those struggles break loose of violence at some point and start taking the form of a concerted effort to say to the European state in its own language, look, The law of property is bankrupt, and the only way for capitalism to survive, given this level of resistance, is to reform the law of land ownership in a way to make it more inclusive. Either you recognize tenant rights and a right not to be evicted, either you extend the right to own property to all of these people who haven't had a right to property, or you're going to have to fight an unending bloody war on all fronts of empire. This, at least in the case of British empire, this moment shakes British empire to its core, and it results in a series of reforms and pieces of legislation that then go viral. They go viral around the world. And those laws are generally called land reform, although we'll be more specific. They're redistributive land reforms and rent control. So rent control is pretty transparent. Most people have heard of it. Rent control is when we pass a law saying the rent cannot rise past a certain level every year. Maybe it adjusts with inflation, but we've got some prohibitions on how rent can change. Land reform is a little more confusing, especially to people from North America, because we haven't heard about it. So land reform might be a rule that says, fine, there can be landlords, but they can't own more than five houses or 500 acres, we could put a land ceiling on them. Or you might say, yeah, there can be landlords, but they have to live in the place where there are landlords. You can rent the upstairs apartment or the downstairs apartment, but not everything. You can't own all of Manhattan and rent it. So land reforms say there's there's some limits on how much people can own in order to capitalize the rent because we need to place prohibitions on this market in particular. There's only so much land. Everybody needs a place to stay. We want to have a participatory market where everybody has a chance to bring their goods and services to market. That can't happen if the rent goes up and up forever, if the price of land goes up and up forever. So we're going to reinvent these reforms. So the very first moment that this appears is in Ireland in the 1880s. In 1881, the land law of Ireland is the moment that I date as the birth of the modern land war. Yeah. The real beginning of your story is this late 19th century Irish landlord against English landlords, led led by an organization called the Land League. Why did this land war erupt when it did in, in the wake of the 1845 potato famine? And 
how did the Land League ultimately win that struggle? So the potato famine is, it's the great genocide of Irish history. It's one of the great genocides of European history alongside the later famine of Finland and the genocide of the Armenian people and the Jewish Holocaust. It's one of like the big five great traumas of Europe in modern times. So one third of the island dies, one third immigrates. They move elsewhere to Australia or to North America, to Canada. One third survives in poverty on government dispensed gruel. As the potato famine is going on, the dominant theory of political economy that's being preached in Ireland is one of eviction as a moral good. Eviction is a law of economic improvement. Because what is the landlord doing when the landlord evicts a family? The landlord is taking that family, which is unable to work, unable to pay. Maybe they're not disciplined enough. Maybe they're not hardworking enough. And it's saying, go try your luck somewhere else. Go try it in Canada or Appalachia. We're done with you here. We're going to raise the rent we're going to make this plot of land where you have been evicted from more profitable. So this is Malthusian thinking. This is part of the doctrine of rent and eviction as propounded by Thomas Robert Malthus at the beginning of the 19th century. And it is the reigning ideology that governs how land is administered in Ireland and other parts of British Empire in the 1840s as the potato famine is carrying on. Now, directly after the famine, that generation that has survived the famine, who have watched their families being evicted, they begin to organize tenant movements, tenant farmers movements. They begin to found new newspapers to rally around the cause of Irish nationalism. And this generation, which calls itself Young Ireland, is the first to start imagining what it would be like if you reversed the sins of British Empire in Ireland. Now, I start with Ireland rather than with indigenous North America or indigenous Australia or native India, not because those places aren't important and that they don't have freedom struggles of their own, but Ireland just happens to be the first place where this long-running resistance against land theft, because the land of the Catholic majority is stolen beginning in the 17th century in Ireland. Ireland happens to be the colonized place where the technologies of newspaper and telegraph arrive first. And that allows a modern public intellectual avant-garde to articulate the cause of resistance and the necessity of reforming property law in such a way that it can be universalized to all parts of empire. So it's not very long before the, the people who are struggling for Indian independence in India start meeting up with the leaders of the Irish reform movement in London and exchanging ideas, exchanging tactics. The movements start to flow into each other. The Native American indigenous movements will, will soon course into the same shape. Ireland happens to be the place that gets the reform, partially because Ireland is at this nexus of technology. Technology allows them to make their message, to organize a reform movement in a certain coherent and targeted way. And then it was in the 1880s, you write, that in response, Britain enacted the first rent control measure in world history. What did those reforms entail? And what was their ultimate significance for the global politics of land reform or 
or the right to occupancy. So the reforms in Ireland, they're passed in Ireland, Scotland, and India by 1886. They're only ever affected in Ireland. So these are the world's first modern land reform, which is a measure for redistributing the land of Ireland from landlords to tenants, and the world's first rent control. So this is, this is actually a series of many, many acts that are passed between 1881 and the 1920s, so a series of pieces of legislation. They are designed to transform Ireland from an absentee landlord state where all of the land is owned by a handful of landlords from England. Profits are going to England or it's a tiny Protestant landholding aristocracy. Those individuals are going to be bought out. They're going to be bought out by the state. And tenants are going to have state-backed mortgages, which they pay into every year, just like an American paying off a mortgage. This is actually where America gets the idea of the state-backed mortgage. Tenants are going to pay into the state-backed mortgage to acquire their piece of property eventually. And at the same time, there are rent control measures where there are map makers and surveyors and economists and judges who are scouring the property records of every piece of land in Ireland and trying to ask the question, what would you have paid in terms of rent had the rent not gone through this dramatic speculation-driven period of escalation. So they're actually using their knowledge of data and their knowledge of economics to try to ratchet back the rent to something that's more stable, something that can be stable in the long run and can promote a broadcast participatory Irish economy where every tenant farmer has an opportunity to help participate in the wealth and the promise of the Irish economy. You write, quote, the modern movements for land redistribution, frequently named national historical traditions, but rarely organized into a historical arc, spelled the reversal of enclosure, a powerful moment for justice in world history. Before we get into more of the historical specifics, set the set the historiographical context for us. Where Where does land reform fit into big picture histories of the 20th centuries, or even more broadly, the, the history of capitalism or the history of colonialism? And to what degree does your story, focused inevitably on something in particular, Britain and its former colonies, to what degree does your story make sense of the entire world? So the last time that somebody tried to write a global history of land reform was Elias Tuma in, in the 1970s. It's been a minute uh, <laughs> since there was any sort of attempt from the university to, to just take all of these, these moments of history and package them into one. And when Elias Tuma was writing, he wasn't the only one. Actually, he was part of a large community of scholars who, who believed that they were in the midst of a global land revolution. Many of them, like Tuma himself, were involved with the administration of various organs at the United Nations or nonprofit agencies, which were trying to execute what they believed would be a more just kind of development economics, where land law was used to ensure that investment in the developing world went straight into the pockets of peasants and landless people who worked the land and indigenous people that it wasn't siphoned off by middle managers and financiers who were channeling the funds into the developing world, which is, of course, the state of development economics at the moment. So 
strange to say, after about 1974, in academia in the United States, the story starts to go away. It starts to go away, and we suffer a kind of forgetfulness of it. If you look at the Harvard College Library catalog from the 1960s and 1970s, and you look up these phrases, agrarian reform, land reform, haciendas, land use, these phrases stipple every dissertation, every major monograph being published in history, anthropology, and sociology. They're a major part of how academics and social scientists think about the world. And it's a type of discourse about social justice. I think we've, we've forgotten to see it that way because, of course, this was a, an earlier era, a more naive era, and ideas about how land ownership was imbricated with problems of race and gender. We understand those very clearly today, but they were just beginning to be researched in the 1960s and 1970s. So that discourse started to be made, and someone like Elias Tuma could write a book about seven centuries of land reform and declare that he believed that the world was on the cusp of a land revolution at which ordinary people would have a right to a stake in the larger economy by virtue of not being subject to eviction, of owning a small piece of property with ease that could appreciate over time. Tuma could believe that, and then that just disappears. Maybe the last major piece of history to consider land reform was Anthony Lowe's The Egalitarian Moment in 1996, which is a history of the 20th century told through post-colonial movements, an important story. So he talks about post-colonialism and land reform is one of one of the facets of post-coloniality that he sees across Asia and Latin America and Africa, across all of the movements of the post-war world in these places. But then it kind of, you know, it kind of drifts off. And I should say that it's a little bit more complicated. I'm reducing the story a little. There's also Nick Cullither's important work. Anybody who was involved with telling stories about agriculture and individual nations in the post-colonial work was well aware that land reform was a thing. But it's been a moment since somebody has stepped back and said, what was this event? When did it start? When did it end? What are the limits? And it's a very hard question. I've, I've proposed one answer. It's not the only answer by far. 1881 is an interesting date for hanging it on. Mm-hmm. 1881 showing a connection between the events in Ireland and what happens at the United Nations and the flowering of land redistribution movements around the world before they're shut down in 1974 by a U.S.-led World Bank. More on that in a moment. <laughs> um, so just trying to wrap wrap that kind of shape of time around it, I think, serves a purpose, particularly now at this moment when we're talking about land reparations, when issues of global rent and eviction are so prominent, when land prices keep on creeping higher and higher. I think it's really useful to remember that there were moments in the past when these issues were at the fore of policymaking, of knowledge in the social sciences, and indeed of social justice movements. And we can learn from them. As I say, my, my narrative isn't the only one. It would look different if you told the this, this story from the point of view of Spanish empire or French empire or from an intellectual history of economists. But at least telling it from the point of view of British Empire and its disintegration, the disintegrated British Empire, which includes, of course, the United States and Canada, Ireland, and India, 
parts of Africa allows us to get a fairly global sweep of this conversation, especially as it occurs in the long 20th century between 1881 and 1974, which are the dates of the story I'm telling. So is it fair to say that because colonialism was fundamentally about land dispossession, that decolonization had to fundamentally be about land redistribution and take the shape of, the, of a long land war? And then is the reason that academics stopped talking about land reform after the 70s because it was politically defeated. And as a result of that political defeat, the world became less and less rural over time. Absolutely. Decolonization has to be seen as a matter of land redistribution. So I think we're in a moment of historians looking at decolonial, anti-colonial movements around the world. And there are many important facets to understanding that problem. One of them is seeing international connections. One of them is seeing identity movements that move between the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa that are based on race and then the implications of those movements back at home. But I think we're missing something fundamental if we fail to look at the role of land redistribution in these decolonial movements. So what Anthony Lowe glimpses in 1996 when he publishes The Egalitarian Moment is that every single one of these decolonizing movements insists from the get-go on getting the land back, getting the land back, meaning all of Zimbabwe is owned by absentee white Protestant landlords. Let's do a land reform movement where we repatriate the land to native peoples. In Kenya, the native population has been living on the land for centuries since time immemorial, and they were legally reduced to squatters, which means that their land claims were invalidated. So decolonization in Kenya is a matter of finding those land claims and talking about what happened with the squatters movement. Same thing in South Africa. Well, same thing in India. Same thing across most of Latin America. There are movements to regain contracts binding titles stating that the people who occupy the land own it. They are not permanent renters, tenants, or squatters on the haciendas owned by a settler class. That is something that's happening. I show in the Long Land War that that's something that's happening from 1881 all the way to 1974. It's even happening today. I think the most recent of these reforms is ongoing in Colombia, where they're having another conversation about land reform and decolonization right now. And you're right that in the 1970s, American academics stop talking about these issues. They stop talking about these issues, especially in North America, in the Anglo-American world, because there's been a major political defeat in the 1970s. There's a sense that the rug has been pulled out from under the United Nations and those stewards of land reform who were trying to rationalize and coordinate these land redistribution movements. And as a result, academics who have been interested in issues of land tenure, by and large, find something else to do with their time. The money has dried up. They are no longer encouraging their graduate students to go study the land reform on the ground. And we can see this even with the, the, the progression 
of disciplines. So, you know, maybe geography is one of the few disciplines where where graduate students are encouraged to go and study land use cases around the world. The University of California, Berkeley, where I did my PhD, has an excellent geography department. Graduates of that department go to work for departments of development economics, of development studies. There are very few places where you can be hired as a geographer in America today, which means that there are very few places where you can study these dynamics of land redistribution and how it works, where you can say one way or another, does it work or does it not? Okay, so American academics stop talking about these issues. At the same time, you know, is it because the academics stop talking about these issues that there's massive urban migration? I think maybe that's a little too simple. But there is massive urban migration. This is the story that Mike Davis tells in Planet of Slums about massive migration from the developing world to cities. And Mike Davis already understands what's happening when that book comes out early 2000s. He understands that these are, these are cities without infrastructure, without sewers, without running water, where the face of poverty is absolutely dire. There's susceptibility to infective disease, to pandemics in a way that there hasn't been because we don't have sewers and running water, because they're not planned cities in any way. They're not actually driven by jobs which makes them totally different from the cities of 18th and 19th century Europe and North America. They're not driven by jobs and opportunity. They are driven by the exile of people from the land. They're driven by the enclosure of property, by supposed squatters or tenants being evicted by landowners and therefore going to the cities because they have nowhere else to go. So we're talking about cities on the scale of 10 million and uh, Mike Davis is able to chart in the early 2000s the emergence of hundreds of new cities, so which is really startling in terms of the planetary implications, the ecological implications of this changing landscape. But you're right. It's part of the same process. Those cities are driven by the failures of land reform in the sense that there was a global 20th century long attempt to keep people where they were, to make them productive whether by helping them to farm more efficiently or helping them to start their own factories in the midst of farms, which would have produced a landscape of thousands or hundreds of thousands of small villages rather than hundreds of towns of desperate squatters fleeing from rural eviction. So the failure of these land reform movements, the failure to support people economically where they were with rights, with titling, with property, with technology, those failures are the driver behind this planetary-wide slumification, the creation of these new cities. So we are now in a new era studying where social scientists study things like the problem of water distribution in the slums of India as a result of these transformations that started at least with the 1970s, but really with this period of the Long Land War going back to the 1880s. The 20th century's communist revolutions in in the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, engaged in the most radical forms of land redistribution known to history. But but the United States also presided over land redistribution in Japan and South Korea after World War II precisely to undermine the appeal of communism. The U.S., you write, was friendly to certain forms of land redistribution because it was believed that the failure to undertake it would spark peasant revolt and— 
There were even beliefs that land reform was required to create the conditions for for private property ownership that would spur along delayed transitions from feudalism to capitalism. So this is a really fascinating thing in your book that land reform was for some period of history embraced in these different ways on both sides of the Cold War. How did such a massive consensus take shape? And to what degree was there truly a consensus? So I think these contradictions of the Cold War are really difficult to make sense of from the point of view of an American historiography of Cold War events, even a leftist historiography of the Cold War, where the world is the world of the 20th century is really divided into capitalist and communist spheres which are reacting in polar opposite ways to the crisis of the working class, to demands of workers, to demands of native populations, and to the exploitation of landscapes and humanity. If you, if you see the world that way, then the fact that communists in Mao's China or Stalin's Russia redistribute land is just a symbol of their addiction to authoritarianism. And the fact that Americans sometimes encouraged people to distribute land in Vietnam, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea is just a facet of the fact that Americans were trying to replicate capitalism everywhere, no matter where they went. But I think it's worth asking the question, wait wait a second, why are both sides on this polarizing argument redistributing land? And that's where it helps to back up the tape from 1945 in this post-war world in which the polarity between capitalism and communism is clear to an earlier period of time, say 1880, as it becomes clear to the European intellectuals who are watching their empire unravel that demands over land ownership are one of the keys that might just tear European empire to bits, and it could leave any kind of anarchy or tyranny or misery or poverty in its wake. If you want there to be a prayer of something like a functional capitalism in which there's some modicum of participation, let alone democracy or functional liberal government, land reform starts to look like the most compelling practical way of ensuring that the partners of former British empire continue to talk to each other and be able to trade. I should add this, I'm presenting it as liberal inevitability, but it comes out of post-colonial discussions and antagonisms and decades of violent terrorism in places like India and Ireland. Either you give us the land back or all of our resources will continue to go into dynamiting bridges and residences in London. So give the land back and then we can conceive of a world in which the government of Ireland and the government of the United Kingdom have a conversation. We can conceive of a world in which trade continues to flow because working people can live for something. They're not going to be incentivized to blow themselves up trying to retaliate against the land theft of their ancestors. So land, land reform becomes the solution to the problem of empire at this critical moment. So out of this moment of post-colonial resistance in places like Ireland, 
It's useful to think about a global consensus about land redistribution, maybe an unwilling, uneasy consensus, which there are lots of possible ways in which this land reform could take place. It could be administered by British Empire, perhaps administered by the League of Nations in order to settle ethnic differences in places like Palestine through moving outside groups in. It could be the result of upwelling popular movements around the world, including the white working class in Australia, demanding rent control, demanding livable cities, which they get. So this is the moment in time where we start to see the same conversations in Russia and in China happening. So I'm talking about the, the the world in between the two world wars. It's a moment of when the world is continuing to gnaw on this. Land reform is on the agenda, homes fit for heroes in Britain. At the same time, Russia has had a revolution in which land politics was driving the conversation and what we should, should we do with the land remains at the top of the agenda. China is similarly witnessing political warfare between different factions, each of which has its own version of land reform. There's communist land reform, of course, but there's also Sun Yat-sen's land reform. If he wins, then there will be a capitalist land reform in which much of the land changes hands from the landlords to the peasants. There will be redistribution, but then the mechanisms of capitalism will govern the rest of the market. So a multiplicity of different kinds of land reform are available around the world. So by the end of the Second World War, that multiplicity is still true. And of course, the world is politically being pulled apart into these separate factions, capitalist and communist. In retrospect, that that is the story that looks like it's running the show. But to a great extent, Stalin is already on a course of experimenting with land reform that was put there already in 1880. And Mao in the same way. He's part of a conversation that has been going with the League of Nations, with Sun Yat-sen, with Georgists, with post-colonial administrators in China since long before the Second World War. So there's something inevitable about both communist nations and capitalist nations experimenting, proving that they can experiment better, in a sense, with, with land reform than each other. And so Stalin and Mao's land redistribution becomes more and more extreme. Ultimately, both of those actors cause enormous famines by doing some of the most large-scale land redistributions in, in history. We could say more about that later. But America at the same time, Kennedy is executing the Treaty of Punta del Este, in which he's talking about American-led land reform for every nation in Latin America. He's taking it as a presupposition of a North America, Latin American alliance that land redistribution is a value that is held by these former colonies of Spain and Portugal, that they need to give, return land to the peasants and that America can help by rationalizing this process, by making sure that peasants get pieces of land that will actually be useful, that they get the investments, that they get the credit, that they get the technology necessary to make sure that that's not just a one-time loan, that they're actually going to be able to live and thrive on a piece of land. So there's capitalist land reform and communist land reform at the same time. And for much of the 50s and 60s, and maybe longer in some other places, it really looks like land reform is inevitable 
Land reform is a subject of world consensus. Land reform is where social science knowledge in general points us, where the social justice conversation is leading. It's about ensuring that peasants can survive, live, and thrive on a piece of land of their own and so have a stake in the economy that protects them against the vicissitudes of trade and international relations. It ensures their food ways, their food sustainability. It keeps communities together. So land reform is is it. So if we tell this narrative, this turns in a way that the story of the 20th century is a Cold War story. It turns it on its head. The Cold War is, you know, it's a trauma. It's a political drama, but it's not the intellectual set of ideas that's running the show. It's not an every nation the way land reform is. And it's just epiphenomenal of a larger hegemonic set of ideas about justice that are running the 20th century. You write about how the U.S. government ultimately turned pretty much fully against land reform, and, and we'll get to that later. But what jumps out to me is that it was in the early year of 1954 that the U.S. orchestrated a right-wing coup in Guatemala in significant part in response to Guatemala's moderate social democratic government's modest land reform agenda. Is it fair to say that there were, from early on, pretty hard limits, or maybe better put, contradictions involved in what you describe as, as U.S. support for land reform? Or was it more that there's like a difference in how the U.S. viewed the reorganization of land in in East Asia versus in Latin America. Because I'm I'm thinking back to Greg Grandin's book, Empire's Workshop, where he describes that moment during the Alliance for Progress as the U.S. consistently arming the reactionary forces that, that murder and repress the very same reformers that the U.S. claims to be supporting. Yeah, I think contradiction is the right word. Sometimes historians of government or ideas would like to present a case that government policy is at a particular point of time is the direct outgrowth of one person's brain, that it's coherent, (laughs) that it's all of a piece. But when we look at what the United States is doing in Latin America and in Guatemala in particular in these years, it's, it's clear that there are equal and opposite forces. I think what Granda does a great job of front-loading is that those those contradictions aren't even so much the byproduct of ideology as of capital. There is an opportunity for U.S. corporations to make money in Latin America in the form of forward factories, banana factories. In Guatemala in 1954, it's United Fruit. United Fruit is running the show. And because United Fruit can call the call up actors in U.S. foreign policy or at least make sure that intelligence and special forces are deployed in the right way, then Guatemala gets the Castillo dictatorship. The pro-peasant land reform is reversed, even at the same time when leading lights in American foreign policy and many important universities are saying land reform is the future. We're working with these other leaders in Latin America to ensure land redistribution. It's not so much a contradiction of ideas as a conflict between these social forces, which are global, 
which America has bought into. They've come from outside America, and America is going along with them. And then the fact that American capitalists have gotten very rich, and they see opportunities, and they're going to use their connections to American government to get whatever they can. So I see it as a crisis between ideology, social movements on the side of land reform, and on the opposite side, opportunism, American opportunism is in a sense the poison pill that starts to undermine all of this really intelligent policy thinking and social science thinking. You dedicate a significant part of your book to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO. Today, it's a UN agency that I'm guessing most listeners have never heard of, or at least many. But in the mid-20th century, you write, you write that the FAO is a global governmental institution dedicated to pursuing economic development as reparations for colonialism, above all else through land redistribution and the support for small farms. What was the FAO founded to be, and what was its vision for the global government of land? And then lastly, where where does that fit into the larger history of global governance as, as that history has been told? So the, the FAO, the, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, is the first of the arms of the UN. So alongside more familiar arms of the United Nations like UNESCO, the FAO is the first to come into being in 1945. It's established in Quebec City. Its first director general is John Boyd Orr, who is a British civil servant, a scholar of nutrition, who's been embedded in efforts to end starvation within Britain. And it takes as its mission the phrase fiat panis, let there be bread. Now, you can tell the story of the FAO in a lot of different ways. It has some intellectual origins in the efforts to coordinate prices for commodities in the era of the League of Nations. So it was, there were predecessors to the FAO that were set up as more or less an international price exchange. Like we're just going to collect information on the price of wheat and then we can ensure that rather than all of the bounty for trading wheat going into a handful of hands of private equity, every nation can get wheat at the right price when there's a famine, when they need it. But by 1945, or Boyd Orr and and several of the other individuals who are instrumental in conversation at the United Nations, there's a feeling that the post-colonial problem of land theft is going to be continuing to drive decolonization. So just thinking about the timeline for a moment, if we think about the way the British Empire falls apart, I mean, the writing is on the wall in 1945, right? Gandhi has been organizing his marches. In 1945, it, it's very clear to anyone who's paying attention that India is going to leave, that many African nations are going to follow. And so we have dozens of former colonies of British Empire leaving in the 10 and 20 years immediately following the Second World War. So John Boyd Orr and his cohort are looking out over this changing landscape of British empire. And they're saying to the United Nations, this is a problem not just for us, but for all European empires. If we want political stability, if we want a world where we're not fighting the Second World War over and over and over again, because 
dictators in this, these developing places are going to be enlisted by who knows what power, we need to ensure a participatory economy, which is where ordinary people have a right to housing and access to the food they need. And the way to do that is through land redistribution. We have heard the demands of India, and they sound a lot like the demands of Ireland and the demands of Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. India, Mexico, and Ireland are the three nations everyone is talking about in 1945 because these are the three stable post-colonial revolutions. India hasn't quite happened yet, but it's absolutely inevitable. And they all demand land reparations, land redistributions, natural resource nationalism. So we want control of our minerals. We want control of our property. We want to pass laws to keep the rent down and to keep rent prices low. So in this world, the FAO is charged, it's shaped by Boyd Orr and others as the institution that can lead those conversations about what a stable set of land policies might look like. And a lot of the work that they do is so pedestrian as to be trivialized. So a lot of what the FAO will do is that they'll, they'll offer advice about how to conduct a survey, a land survey, how to map your land, how to have a survey map that will tell you which piece of land, which peasant should get so you don't put one peasant on an acre of desert and another peasant on an acre of rural forest and call it even. If you do that, you're going to have another revolution. But Boyd Orr in his prize-winning book, The White Man's Dilemma, sketches out the contradictions in front of the United Nations in very plain terms. He says, we are facing an era of unlimited warfare. Unless we institute these policies, the white man will have to make sacrifices. Europeans will have to make sacrifices in the form of their land, giving over the right to land, giving over rights over sovereignty to make sure that there are sustainable economies in the developing world. Otherwise, the 20th century will be a continuing bloodbath. So that's how the, the FAO is organized and set up. And then it continues to evolve through the 40s and 50s and 60s. They are given a global mandate to organize land around the world to help all the member nations of the United Nations confront this era of decolonization. And that's exactly what they set out to do. How did the FAO's vision for development relate or compare to what we might think of as the dominant modernization theories of the time, articulated by people like Walter Rostow. These are theories that, in the face of heavy criticisms from dependency and world systems theorists and others, theories that were enormously influential, at least ultimately, at the highest echelons of global political economic power. Where does the FAO fit into this broader fight over how to think about the trajectory of economic development in the formerly colonized world? A debate that in so many ways ended up defining the 20th century. So Rostow and Barrington Moore are propounding a logic of development, which is imagined as a series of stages which all nations must pass through in order to, to reach industrial welfare, bounty, democracy, modernity, modernity. And they are dominant they are dominant in the sense that they dominate certain conversations at places like Harvard and Washington. They are the, the roots of the Washington consensus. But if we look to where the FAO moves its headquarters, to Rome, so that they can have faster flights to anywhere in the developing world, if we look at Rome, 
Rome isn't paying a lot of attention to Rostow and Moore, who are really writing warmed-over British histories of industrialization. They're really writing a recipe book that says, if you want to be Britain during the Industrial Revolution, first you need to enclose your land, then you need secure property rights, then you do this, and then you do that, and soon you too will be Britain in the 19th century with Manchester and railways and factories. Hooray! In Rome, in Rome they're like, you know, what's, what's that? That's not going to work. We have a wider perspective of history. There was an era of empire, which was the era of land theft globally. Then there was an era of rebellion against empire, which is now culminating in this problem of post-coloniality. And if that is true, it is inevitable that warfare will continue everywhere unless the land is redistributed. This is the first demand that will satisfy the problem of political stability and economic growth. And we believe we can see it in the precedence of what's happened in Ireland. Ireland rebelled. It was in a state of constant dynamite plots and terrorism until it got independence and land redistribution. Mexico also had a revolution that was tamed only by land redistribution and the creation of the ajitos. India has been in a state of terrorism and constant rebellion. And it is demanding land redistribution. We can secure land redistribution for the rest of the world, set up the peasants of the entire developing world for a peaceful path to prosperity. So I call this in the book the Rome Consensus. And I call it the Rome Consensus because nobody in Rome, nobody in these human conversations is talking about Rostow and more. They're reading totally different texts. They have their own series of intellectuals, some of whom are in the American university system. They're at places like UPenn. Sometimes they're visiting scholars at Harvard. Uh, they might be at Iowa or North Dakota State or Wisconsin or Berkeley. And they're reading the writings of theorists in the developing world. They spend time hanging out with the followers of Gandhi and Nehru in India. So the Rome consensus is actually, I, I think we're missing the picture. We're looking at a really provincial lens when we imagine that Rostow and Moore are dominant and the only thing you need to know about intellectual trends in the 1950s. That's a very parochial perspective. Actually, that's that's one class of mandarins in Washington, D.C. And beyond them, there's this much thicker conversation that involves many Americans. It involves members of the intelligentsia like Pearl Buck, winner of the Nobel Prize. It involves John Boyd Orr, winner of the Nobel Prize. It involves many sociologists, anthropologists, and historians leading Ivy League institutions and European institutions. The Rome consensus is actually a much thicker conversation involving all of the social sciences and humanities with a much more hopeful attitude and diverse reading of history. You write that the FAO aspired to be a global government of land. But on what basis could a global institution like the FAO, which, which is not a nation state but instead derives its power from nation states like the rest of the UN, on what basis could it have the power to implement land reform? Well, this is a really interesting question because there's a real sense in which the work of the United Nations and the FAO in particular are hamstrung from the very get-go. So Mark Mausauer is the, the person who's really analyzed this. And he says, look, there were proposals to create a world court. If we had a world court, we would have a place 
to try genocide. We could try global property issues, global issues of displacement and theft. But there was a real feeling at the founding of the United Nations that if such an institution existed, then European empires and American power might be held responsible and that might be bad for business. So, so the world court was never established in that sense. There's an ongoing effort, of course, to revisit these questions in terms of a world court and a place to try human rights cases. This is still very much a live topic. It's been reintroduced in recent decades. But it's telling who's prosecuted and, and who's yes. not. And I don't mean to be such a cynic, but I, I, I just wonder if it's possible that it be otherwise, than that these sort of institutions reflect the, the balance of power of, of, of the geopolitical order. Yes. I think that's a very good question. You know, when I talk to European intellectuals about this, uh, there are many European intellectuals around who have spent more time than Americans thinking about what would be necessary for the UN to really come into power as a site of democracy. It's a site of democracy and development economics and creating more equitable economies, which could be a great, you could imagine a, a UN that would be a really great force for making sure that the infrastructure works in parts of South Africa or that climate policies are held to. And when I talk to European intellectuals, they say, well, we already all pay taxes to the United Nations. What would happen if we all voted on where the United Nations spends our money? It could be included in every tax form, just a page. You know, more money for climate policy, more money for global infrastructure building, for clean drinking water, for education. You know, vote on these. People of every nation could vote, but you would need some kind of a mechanism for helping citizens of every nation to imagine themselves as part of a polity. I think that's, that's, that's a kind of Benedict Anderson thought experiment. How would you make an imagined community for global government today? Well, they certainly didn't have these things in 1945. So this is, you know, this is all speculation. This is just us chatting. This is an actual history. <laughs> in 1945, they don't have any of these things. They don't get a world court. They have even less of one than we do today. But what they are allowed to build is really interesting. They're allowed to build bureaucracies full of experts who can advise and sometimes spend money to create certain kinds of systems that can tweak the economy in the direction of justice or in the direction of functioning, let's say. So the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, I pronounce it the way that they pronounce it in Italy because the headquarters <laughs> are in Rome. FAO rhymes with cow. The FAO becomes an institution that compiles agricultural statistics. They compile agricultural research, including research on the history of land reforms around the world and how they have worked. They begin piecemeal surveying projects for member nations interested in rationalizing their systems of land administration. So if you don't have the equivalent of the USGS National Survey, if you don't have an Army Corps of Engineers surveying every piece of property in the entire land, the FAO can help you with that. They can bring in geographers and geologists who have done this in other nations to advise your geographers and geologists about how to set it up, about what scale to use and what equipment to use and how you need to keep the records and how you need to update it. 
If you don't have a land court, they can send in people who know about land courts. If you're thinking about an agrarian reform and you don't have one, they'll send in experts. If you're thinking about starting agricultural cooperatives so that farmers, small farmers can get together and buy a tractor for everyone, they will send in world experts who know about how agricultural cooperatives have worked over the entire face of the earth. And so that's what they start doing. They start creating an information infrastructure. Now, when I when I say this to certain American historians, they laugh. They say, I mean, I have all of these funny lines in the book about how the FAO decided to revolutionize the world using the lightest of lightweight technologies, colon, paper. <laughs> and my American friend, my Americanist friends who study American history, they laugh their heads off. They're like, paper, it's so ridiculous. They want to do international governments and all they have is paper. Well, my dear... Look at the history of industrialization in Great Britain, France, and Germany. Industrialization was created on roads and railroads and canals, which were put into place in the 18th and 19th century because there were collections of maps. Napoleon won campaigns because he had a collection of maps that told him about where to fight battles. Collections of maps and map makers allow you to make rational arguments to parliaments, which allow the legislation to be passed on an enormous scale to facilitate building infrastructure, building new systems, you know, whether that's building harbors and lighthouses and warehouses in Great Britain with the help of the state, or building railways across France, or railways across the United States in the 19th century. So in the 20th century, it's no accident that the United Nations, which has nothing, no authority, no world court, no authority to tell another nation what to do, the fact that they start building an international system of bureaucrats who are in charge of paper is no accident. They know what they're doing. And it's not as stupid a move as it sounds. <laughs> it's vulnerable in certain ways because there are limits to that kind of power. But you can do a lot with maps. Well, I mean, but you do ultimately come down kind of hard on the FAO on this count, arguing that they, they succumb to a certain cartophilia yes. or, or love of information. You tell the story of one truly Borgesian seeming exercise of creating a soil map of the entire world. Yeah. yeah. So you were talking about the potential and actually the necessity of an information infrastructure to do what the FAO wanted to do. But how did they ultimately come around to making, quote, building a perfect information infrastructure a goal in itself? Well, the perfect information infrastructure is is the tool that they have. When you, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like they don't have coercive state power. Right. In a sense, let me just draw the, the, the parallel. This is very much like the situation of the IPCC. Is the most effective way to fight climate change, to issue report after report saying the consensus of science is that global warming is actually happening. No, no, that does nothing. Yeah. And it would yet, be to send in state agents to just shut down fossil fuel production immediately, right. but they can't do that. Right. <laughs> right. The IPCC doesn't have that authority. The United Nations has never had that authority. There is no institution that can do it. So all they can do is mobilize information. 
I'm just going to leave that open. That you know, What should the IPCC be doing rather than staging Congress after Congress in which there are protesters outside and diplomats doing dip- diplomacy inside and information is being passed? Maybe the, the, the UN can't do anything, but this is where Kim Stanley Robinson's thought experiment in the Ministry of the Future is really compelling, right? He's, what he's imagining is a rebellion of UN officials who have had it with inaction, and they say something has to change, and they invent their shadow ministry to do effective work to ensure that money actually goes to the right places to fight global warming, to ensure sustainable agriculture and a sustainable economy. So again, I'm taking a diversion into um, speculation, but I'll bring us back to history and to the realm of facts. I think that those speculations are important to, to, to glance at because they, they remind us of you know, what's really at stake when you're starting a new information bureaucracy. You know, Kim Stanley Robinson really gets it in a sense. He gets that you can't solve climate change without – you can't solve a problem like global landlessness or the land redistribution in the, the wake of the Second World War without a global bureaucracy helping, without a global government. But you don't have that authority when you get started. So where do you start? You start with collecting information. And so the founders of the, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, they start doing that. And their move is really smart. So they begin this project of accumulating the maps that will form the world map of soils right after the Second World War. It's in 1955 when FAO agents visit Dudley Stamp in Britain and ask him to join ranks to create a world land use survey. And then they, you know, they go through various iterations as they're trying to figure out what to do. The maps itself, the maps aren't actually published until 20 years later. And that's the problem. But the idea of making all of these maps, it's absolutely crucial. Because if I'm dividing up all of India and every peasant is going to get some land, if I divide it into just acres on a grid, some guy is going to get a rock in the Himalayas. Somebody else is going to get a really fertile field that's been well tilled and cleared. And that's not fair. That's not fair. So if you're going to do a rational land redistribution where you're just going to buy out all of the landlords and redistribute the lands, you need to know at minimum what kind of soil is there. Is it just desert? Is it just a rock? Is it fertile loam? And we can still maybe grow things if it's more desert-like, but you might need irrigation. You might need other kinds of amendments. You might need government to make other kinds of investments. So if you, if you have this map of soils and it tells you, okay, you know, we're working in Rajasthan. It's a high desert. If we redistribute this land, farmers are going to need larger plots of land. They're going to need some irrigation. They're going to need some other equipment. They're going to need to grow certain things that you can't grow in other places. So you do that kind of land redistribution on the back of, of the map. When historians have thought about this, they're like, the United Nations wanted to map the entire face of the earth? Gosh, how ambitious, how <laughs> imperializing. Uh, they, they must have been obsessed with control. The UN must have been this world government obsessed with control. Or maybe that's just what governments do because they don't know what to do. It's possible when you tell this story to really miss the point. The point of the world map of soil is not that the UN is totalizing in its ambition. It's that they're thinking really rationally about how to support member nations. The member nations like India, India wants this map. The individual states of India have 
peasant farmers saying, we need to redistribute land. It's held by a tiny minority of those families that benefited under British Empire. Please give us the land. Please give us the land. And the states in India are saying, yeah, this is a really great idea. We just passed a land reform law, but we can't do it effectively unless we map everything. And you know what? India is great at a lot of things, but we don't have a robust a robust cadre university system for training geographers. The United Nations, if you could send us a map, if you could send us some mappers, great, but if you could send us a map, that would be really helpful that would help us to do our land redistribution. So the map is a tool of serving social movements around the world where they have had successes at the national level. The map is a great idea of service, but part of the problem is scale. So they don't realize when they start first start making inquiries in 1955 about the world map of soils, they don't understand that it will take 20 years to map the entire world. All of the other maps that have been tried of this kind have been on a national scale, the mapping of Great Britain, the mapping of North America. This is, this is the first attempt to map a world. And this is before the advent of satellite technology and GIS and all of those things that would make it trivial. You know, starting in the 19, 1970s and 80s, it's now really trivial to do some of this work today. So part, part of what happens, what gets in the way of the FAO is, is scale. And part of it is cardophilia. You know, are they trying to avoid the problem of administering land and redistributing land. No, the, I think the intentions of the FAO are good, but they all they have is paper at the end of the day. They can't compel national policies. They can't write national laws. They can't take cases to an international court of law. They have no binding power over member nations. They can't compel anyone to institute a binding land policy to make rent livable or sustainable for everyone. So what they do is they execute all of these studies. And if you will, you know, this, is, this is, I think, a contradiction about how social justice works in the 20th century, the long 20th century, and the 21st century, which is still, I still kind of flinch when I think about the Faust cardophilia, because this is the situation of publisher parish in academia in Europe and the United States right now. We academics have the leisure to think about large spans of time and all of these contradictions of international institutions. What can we do about it? We can write books. We can write articles. We can collect data sets. Are we invited into write legislation? Very, very rarely. Do we partner with community organizations? Some people have figured out how to, how to collect data, how to write, write legislation with those organizations. You know, and I think there's a participatory revolution going on there as people question the cardiophilic model of accumulating more data sets. But viewed from a long distance, what is the United Nations, what is the FAO doing in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s? They have set out to solve some of the most fundamental problems of the economy, poverty, landlessness, homelessness, the high price of rent. They see the targets with great precision. They have the capabilities, they see that a bureaucracy can do a lot of things. What do they set out to do? They set out to publish paper, and it's not enough. The paper is not enough. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. 
It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right by Brendan O'Connor, now available in paperback. In Blood Red Lines, journalist Brendan O'Connor investigates the recent history and politics of U.S. nativism, from the dark money-funded think tanks to the militant reactionaries battling anti-fascists in the streets. As O'Connor argues, a new ideology is emerging, border fascism, one that any movement for working-class liberation will need to reckon with in the struggles to come. Greg Grandin says of the book, Blood Red Lines connects the dots providing a vivid account of the rise of a unique kind of U.S. fascism, born on the border, but now nationalized. O'Connor simultaneously produces empathy and outrage in the exact proportions we need to fight back. Indispensable. Find Blood Red Lines at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Even in the the mid-century heyday of, of global land reform politics, advocates of land redistribution had to navigate a number of hostile ideologies and philosophies, including, you write, a renewed Malthusianism that reached its peak in 1968 with Paul Ehrlich's best-selling book, The Population Bomb. I know a little about this moment because Ehrlich and reactionary ecologist Garrett Hardin would help found the contemporary American nativist movement. They extended their alarm over third world women's wombs abroad to the presence of third world people generally inside the United States. But but what did that moment of apocalyptic panic around overpopulation, which is really hard to overstate for people who weren't alive then like like me to actually go and see how pervasive this hysteria over overpopulation was, what did that panic over overpopulation in the decolonizing world, what did it have to do with the politics of land reform? Well, it has everything to do with the politics of land reform for a number of reasons, which are hard to unpack. So one one thing that's important to remember about the era directly following the Second World War is that this is an era of some of the most severe famines that the world has ever seen. And we now understand many of those famines as a long-lasting consequence of the kinds of relationships that have been set up under European empires during the 19th century. We also understand some of them to have something to do with authoritarian politics in the Soviet Union and China and the effect of those kinds of politics on the flow of foodstuffs. So, for example, 1958 to 62, Mao's Great Leap Forward begins a rapid program of industrialization and urbanization, draining the collective farms of workers, resulting in one of the worst famines in human history, with deaths estimated between 12 million and 38 million. Hard to comprehend numbers. Hard to comprehend. 
There's, of course, the, the famines in India at the end of the Second World War, which we now understand were, were compounded by Britain's refusal to send aid, including the, the governor general's refusal to submit requests of aid that might divert any resources from white troops fighting in the Second World War. Part of a recurrent pattern of, of, of famine under British colonial rule in India. Indeed. And, and the, that pattern of famine continues through the 1960s, even after Indian independence, 1965 to 67, um, maybe the last of the major periods of droughts and famines in India. We think that's also related to a sort of holdover of, of imperial patterns. But in 1965, as those famines are rolling out, there have been these massive famines in China and and the Soviet Union as well. I think from the perspective of Europe and the United States, it just looks like places that are not Europe and the United States are unilaterally succumbed to famine. It's just endemic. You can't do anything about it. There's something fundamentally wrong in those places. And what's wrong is an empire from this point of view because this has just gone on for so long and they don't know as much as we know today about how the period of famine really starts with British Empire. So it, there's just, you know, there's a feeling of just in, incomprehensible tra- tragedy that seems to be geographically overdetermined. It's, it's in the global south. That's what we know about the famine. Inherent dysfunction and pathology. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so if you go casting about for an explanation in 1950, well, everybody knows there's an explanation ready to hand. It's only 150 years old. It's our friend Thomas Robert Malthus again. <laughs> and the problem is that those people have too many children. They are improvident like Roman Catholics. And uh, because they are improvident, they don't control their impulses. Uh, they don't save up money or reproductive fluid, <laughs> so they run out of food too soon, and a just and loving God has sent pan- famine and warfare and pestilence to punish them, to teach them the loving ways of discipline and fortitude so that they too can become prosperous, hardworking Protestants like the rest of us in North America and Europe. So that, that explanation which I would warn you against. There are way better ones, uh, especially now. That explanation, antique as it was, had a certain appeal at the end of the Second World War. I mean, it, it explains why. If, if you want it to explain why famine is, is widespread in the developing world, then it does explain. I mean, it has some explanatory value, seem, seemingly. And so in the 1960s, there's a series of books that become bestsellers in North America, which essentially rehash this Malthusian argument. They advertise a crisis of overpopulation. Overpopulation is the agrarian issue, and it is a problem of improvident nations without science, without modern technology, nations that don't look like us, and they need control. What they need is control, or this population bomb will explode in the form of disrupting international political stability. So the, the books include 1964, William and Paul Paddock, brothers who publish Hungry Nations. In 1968, Paul Ehrlich publishes The Population Bomb, which becomes a bestseller. Part of the explanatory power comes from ecology. I think 
Ehrlich and the Paddocks have degrees in in the sciences. They're trained as biologists. Garrett Hardin, an ecologist, publishes The Tragedy of the Commons, which, which forwards a model of overpopulation from herd biology, from the management of livestock. And basically, the argument is cows will eat all of the grass and then stars. So we too, humans, if there are too many of us, we will eat everything on the planet and then starve. So therefore, you should not have a commons. What's interesting about all of these arguments is they go back to Malthus for the solution. The only solution that Malthus could see to the problem of overpopulation that he identified was strong property rights, single owner property rights by landlords. One person owns a piece of property in the Lockean mode, strong contracts, and then you have to pay higher and higher rent. And that is the solution to forcing people to work harder, to produce more food and have fewer children and eat less. If we just have strong landlords, it will all work. Now, of course, that doesn't prevent the Irish potato famine or any of the 19th century famines in India. Strong property rights turn out to not be the answer. I mean, not strong property rights per se, but landlordism, strong landlords, land theft, <laughs> proprietorship. This cocktail turns out to actually be the cause of many of the famines. So Ehrlich and the Paddocks and Garrett Hardin, they're creating a kind of policy panic in the post-war world, in this Cold War world. The problem is these developing nations. The problem is these small farmers who have too many kids. And the solution is, the solution is to stop helping them. The solution is to stop helping them because improvidence is at the root of the problem. So that comes out the clearest in, in the book that William Paddock publishes with his wife, Elizabeth, in We Don't Know How, an Independent Audit of What They Call Success in Foreign Assistance, published in 1973. We Don't Know How is, it's an assassination attempt on global land reform. And it, it, you know, it's a little light on fact. There are a lot of social scientists at the time who were studying land reform programs and small farming in detail, really looking at productivity. Paddock has drunk the Ehrlich Kool-Aid. He's, he's convinced that the problem is the small farmers themselves. He is an agricultural biologist who has run a research center in Guatemala, and his sympathies were firmly with United Fruit, who put him up in their casita, their guest casita, during the worst of the fighting. To him, Latin American social movements mean chaos. And science means managing vast tracts of property properly with tractors and pesticides and large amounts of American seeds. And, and therefore, social movements, including land redistribution and land reform, are they're just false. They're fool's gold. You shouldn't pay any attention to them. Well, these books are bestsellers, and I think it helps to ask why were they bestsellers? Why, why are they all over the New York Times? Why did Americans want to read these books in the 1950s and 1960s? And like I say, I think they have some explanatory power. In the 50s and 60s, we're still living in this era of famines of incredible scale, and people want to solve that problem. The FAO is trying to solve it in one way, and they're aligned with post-colonial nations. But there is also this very antique story from empire that it's the fault of the colonized people 
The fact that they're starving is their own fault. It's their improvidence. It's their mismanagement. What we need is more authority. What we need is Western science take control out of the hands of the people. And that's a very appealing narrative for certain Americans, particularly those trained in the sciences with less of a background on history. And not only is what we need Western science, we literally need industrial-scale American agriculture to feed the whole world through exports. Yes, yes. Well, it's a self-serving narrative. It's also good for American business. It's good for John Deere. It's good for Monsanto. Let's talk about China, which, for the reasons we've described, looms large in the global history of land reform. As you just mentioned, it, it was Mao's Great Leap Forward, launched in 1958, that led to this this astronomically lethal famine. But but those deaths were erroneously blamed on land reform. You write, when in fact, quote, it was industrialization rather than collectivization that was the problem. What then was the reality of Chinese land reform? And what made it different from Soviet-style land collectivization, which did indeed lead directly to a very lethal famine? How how was it that China's forced relocation of peasants to cities caused this worst famine in world history? And and what were the consequences of it wrongly being blamed on land reform? Well, actually, Soviet Russia and China share in common a pattern of moving from an era of family for- farms to an era of forced collectivization and then of other authoritarian impulses that lead to massive famine and breakdown. But it's important to pull these events apart because it's not true at all that land redistribution led to famine. In fact, the opposite is true. The periods of family farming and land redistribution in both communist China and in the communist Soviet Union are understood to have been highly productive. So in 1945 to 55, China's Communist Party begins an era of land redistribution focused on family farms. In 1947, the Chinese Communist Party publishes an outline land law that sets forward the principle of equal land holding. And they encourage peasants in the countryside to take action to establish farms of equal size. And at this point, productivity in China goes up and up. In 1950, the Chinese Communist Party passes its land reform law. 82% of the developing world at this point globally lives in the countryside. So China is in many ways a model, a model for the rest of the world. It's not until the Great Leap Forward in 1958 that productivity starts to fall apart in communist China. And it's uh, marked by a rapid program of industrialization and urbanization and a huge number of deaths of famine. But it's not – the famine follows from this great leap forward when the workers are being taken away from the collective farms that were established under Mao. They've been taken away from the family farms and forced to work in industry. This is when the real period of industrialization happens. So the problem here is authoritarian policies which force industrialization. They're seen – we believe that they were seen in communist China and communist Soviet Union as being necessary to catch up with industrialization in the United States. But it's also interesting to think about 
land reform in China and the Soviet Union as an experiment, an experiment with land to the tiller programs, which start family farms, and then with even the forced collectivization, the collectivized farms, which which have a bad reputation. But both of those episodes, both the family farming era and the collectivized farming era in in China were, were eras of growing crop production and declining mortality. So things got better in terms of how much you had to eat and how long your children lived and how long your relatives lived when the land was redistributed. So this is this is important for world history because these are the two largest land reforms in world history. We might not like the politics of them. I don't like the politics of them. I think that there are other ways of doing land redistribution. There's certainly other models which work better for the name of economic fairness, of uh, democratic participation, of many other values that we might esteem. But just in terms of if you redistribute the land so that farmers have their own plot of land or they farm farms together, how do things fare? The case of China and the case of Russia suggest that they fare great. They fare great. Passing the land around so that everybody has a share works well, and it works well even on collective farms. You write a lot about the role of Indian economists in this this global debate over land and agrarian reform, including their critique of that Western overpopulation panic that we were discussing. Instead, they, they argue that small farms or perhaps larger cooperatives could feed a growing India if the right conditions were met. And those conditions, importantly, included the availability of certain types of small-scale technology, also known as appropriate technology. What was this milieu of, of Indian economists? And why was their role in the national and global politics of land so important? So that, those are great questions, Daniel. And I want to start. I want to start sort of in medias race uh, to anchor my answer with some events that Americans will be more familiar with. So m- most Americans in, at the beginning of the 21st century have heard the name of E. F. Schumacher, and they've heard of appropriate technology. At least they've heard of initiatives inspired by the philosophy of appropriate technology, like one laptop per child. So lots of initiatives in modern-day Silicon Valley have been inspired by reading back into the the dialogues about information technology and the power of technology in general in the 1950s and 1960s that we're about to talk about. And Schumacher's book was Small is Beautiful, which many people have probably heard of. Published in 1973. And Schumacher is the popularizer of these conversations that really begin in India before independence, in the period in which India is a colony of Great Britain. So in that milieu, India is in a really strange position with respect to technology because India has the best, one of the best rail networks in the world, hundreds upon hundreds of miles of heavy railroad placed by the British to export raw materials like cotton from India. But India doesn't have any of its own manufacture. And so part of the critique of British empire, it's being written by people like Gandhi in the early years of the 20th century, 
is that there are kinds of large-scale technology that don't make ordinary people rich. They just make the rich richer. So if you if all of the railroads run, they don't run from city to city. They just run from the cotton field to the port, and uh, you you charge extra penalties on farmers who are trying to bring in heavy equipment to make their own factories, then that kind of a railroad doesn't make poor farmers in India any richer. It keeps them poor. You can have really expensive technology, you can have really expensive infrastructure, and it keeps people poor. This is one of the great mysteries of 19th century empire. Something Walter Rodney identified as well. Indeed. Marx was optimistic about it. He thought, you know, surely if there are enough hundreds of miles of railroad, India will industrialize instantly. Well, the Indians have opinions about this. And one of the things that people like Gandhi have started to notice by the 1920s is that small-scale technology doesn't work like this. If technology is small enough and cheap enough, then anybody can tinker with it. And Gandhi writes about the spinning wheel. That's why there's a spinning wheel on the flag of India. He writes about the power of any household. Anybody in India can just like grab some cotton and spin their own thread using this ancient technology. That's, it's a spindle. It's just a spinning top and it makes thread. It's not expensive. You can make your own. You can hack it. You can perfect it. Yeah, And then all of a sudden you are a maker of cotton thread and you can weave your own cloth. You can sell it at, for much more than you would sell the original cotton. And this is also a period of time when bicycles, bicycles are spreading across India and across most of South Asia. So there are also bicycle shops all over Asia and South Asia where people who are Indian make the technology, adjust the technology, hack the technology. You know, you're not going to get become a, a billionaire selling bicycles, but you could have a decent living with a bicycle shop or a bicycle repair shop. So bicycles, spinning wheels, these are the sorts of things that, that Gandhi and his followers are thinking about in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s when they're thinking, we've really got to get away from the British economy. It's leaving India poorer and poorer. There are these terrible famines. We need more wealth in this country, and we have to build it up by small-scale technology. So this is part of the message that international economists hear when they come to India in the years after the Second World War and they start talking to India's economists, India's economists who have trained with Gandhi, who have opinions about how technology, big or small, could work. They're saying, you know, there's industrialization that's going to make us some millionaires. But if we want... If we want a nice organic industrial revolution like what Britain had in the 18th century, what America had during the 19th century, then we want to imagine a world in which technology is something that every small farmer can have a share of. And they start to foment this philosophy of small is beautiful. And that is the message that the American second director general of the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, Hears when, as a functionary of the United Nations, Norris Dodd comes to India as he's doing his world tour in the 1950s. In 1949, he arrives in India and Pakistan, and he hangs out with some devotees of, of Gandhi, who has just been assassinated in 1948. And they say, we have other ideas about how the economy should work. So they start to imagine a world in which the UN is going to support 
a world of farmers who are making their own buckets and their own hoes. Long-handled hoes are something that isn't used in large parts of, of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. They have the other agricultural implements, but it turns out long-handled hoes are really useful. What if you imagine hundreds of tiny factories making long-handled hoes across the countryside of India and the countryside of China. So this is what Norris Dodd starts to plan for. This is one of the reasons why he builds up an information infrastructure to share agricultural research and blueprints. He wants his information infrastructure to support thousands or millions of independent small entrepreneurs and makers of technology participating in a healthy, horizontally diverse economy that is inspired by these ideas of Indian economists. So that is part of the plan in India in the period after, after independence. There's a lot of hope about India becoming a nation of small farmers, small inventors who are all tinkering with different kinds of farming technology and water technology, and from that India building up into an industrial nation. Now, that's not actually what will happen, but it is this really interesting period in part because it becomes part of the intellectual discourse about technology. It's taken up at conferences at MIT and in Britain and people like E.F. Schumacher start propounding the philosophy of small is beautiful and talking about how it could revolutionize the developing world and it could even revolutionize poverty in America. And it's absorbed such that, you know, everyone in Silicon Valley has heard of Schumacher. They've heard of small is beautiful. They've kind of absorbed this, we love our raspberry pie. We love tinkering. We love cultures of tinkering. That's the best part of Silicon Valley. We want our kids to go to maker fairs and learn STEM. Like, you know, we're in a, in a sense, we are all the intellectual heirs of Gandhi at this point in the 21st century. So it's it's really important to understand why why that doesn't pan out the way people think it's going to pan out in India. It seems like it's fair to say that it's a bit of a perversion of the initial small is beautiful vision to see it utilized by the largest corporations on on planet Earth rather than the rather than small farmers in India. That's right. That's right. So this is what, what, what plays out. Perversion is a good word. What plays out is a story that we know largely thanks to the research of American historian Nick Cullither. And it's a story about American big business and American foreign policy uh, and American nonprofits like the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations sending tractors, sending improved seeds that are very thirsty, kinds of white wheat and rice that are thirsty for lots of water. You can plant them and they'll produce more wheat and rice, but only if you keep watering them and watering them and watering them, which means that you can they're only cost efficient on very large fields with irrigation. And this was the Green Revolution, which really did live up to its name. It revolutionized agriculture all over the place. Yes, indeed. The Green Revolution is a product of the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations. It's a product of American agribusiness. 
John Deere starts selling tractors to the developing world. It's very good for American business. This is the long story behind American biotech and Monsanto, why there are so many farms that are so large around the world. But of course, it's not the majority of farms. It's not even the majority of farms that produce the majority of the world's food stuff. It's the majority of the farms today that produce the majority of our biofuels and our fodder for animals. Uh, they're all products of the Green Revolution. In India, the Green Revolution is, uh, it's, it's really a social tragedy. So it's both a wonderful revolution in terms of productivity of rice and ending famine in India once and for all by driving down the price of rice. And it's an unthinkable tragedy to the plan of making India a nation of small farmers. I mean, after all, all of these land reforms have just been passed, newly independent India. And there's a profound spirit of hope in 1947 at independence that India is going to be a nation where where poor people can rise through hard work and they all have these small farms. Well, as the measures of the Green Revolution are introduced, cheap irrigation goes to the biggest landholders and they drive down the price of wheat and rice and many, many small farmers go out of business in the process. So over the years between 1960 and 1980, roughly 20 million people are displaced by industrial agriculture in India. 20 million people are leaving their homes in the countryside, they're leaving their farms, they're leaving their posts as agricultural workers because they can't make a living anymore in this era of of thirsty seeds and big John Deere tractors. And they're very often migrating to cities where there are no jobs for them, where no future awaits. They become a legion of squatters. They don't own their home in the city. By being pushed off the land, they're not being drawn by jobs. And this is a, a global phenomenon, not just India, but enormous numbers of people displaced in countries like Brazil as well. That's right. At the same time, I think 28.4 million people are displaced in Brazil by the conversion of smallholder plots to industrial-scale farms specializing in export agriculture. So huge numbers of movement, huge numbers of movement worldwide. When and how did this era of global land reform, agrarian reform consensus end? Was land reform first defeated on the ground in, in places like India through the Green Revolution before being declared out of fashion as a philosophy. How was it, in other words, that agrarian reform got deemed a failure with markets decreed this new panacea to be arrived at through countries industrializing their agriculture sector and by doing so allowing for them to industrialize their entire economy, all funded through growing piles of debt? Well, this is one of the most fun things to, to figure out about the history of agrarian reform. So, you know, in a certain kind of social science program in North America in the 1980s and 1990s, you might have learned that land reform was a failure. You might have heard that in, if you were studying in an economics department at a place like, I don't know, Harvard or MIT over many any of the last decades. On the other hand, if you were studying agricultural economics – a separate PhD program, a separate department at Berkeley or at Wisconsin or Cornell over 
the last many decades, just a different set of universities, they would have shown you lots and lots of evidence that no such thing was true, that programs of small farmers, both in communist states like the Soviet Union and China and in socialistic states like different states in India and in other nations in which we've we've had land reform, that wherever land reform was passed, the Gini coefficient goes down, which means that more and more people have a share of economic growth when economic growth happens. So by many standards, agrarian reform over the last 100 years has been a raging success. Similar research from the 1960s to the present has looked into agricultural productivity. There is an argument that has been made that the Green Revolution is was necessary in terms of productivity. You had to have a green revolution in order to abolish famine. But that seems not to be true. In fact, there have been surveys, surveys of all of the academic research published since the early 1970s, which have looked into agricultural productivity across a variety of circumstances and come to the conclusion that small-scale agriculture is just as productive as the Green Revolution. So we would have no problem feeding even a growing planet with land reform. So the data isn't what biased people for land reform or against land reform. It's actually more subtle than that. It's, it's about the power of economic narrative, the stories we like to tell. There's a certain way of telling the story of the, the long land war in which the the Green Revolution is what seals the fate of land reform around the world. And we put the, the lid on the kettle of, of socialism and we go to a, a new era of free market dealing in which we realize that the only thing the poor people of the world need is secure contract. And then uh, through free market land reform, the World Bank promotes a new green revolution around the world. Now, this is probably not the best way of telling the story. The best-selling books about overpopulation in the 1960s and 1970s and in the United States, the books that we mentioned before, like Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb and William and Paul Paddock's Hungry Nations, they create a kind of moral panic around farmers in the developing world. There are too many mouths to feed, they say. We have to use these improved kinds of grains. Many of the writers involved in this scare are themselves plant biologists, like the Paddock brothers. Uh, they've been instrumental in creating the new kinds of improved corn and rice and wheat that they hope will feed the rest of the world. They are intimately on the side of United Fruit and the other American ag corporations that are spreading their tentacles around the world. So they say, look, we have to go with big agriculture, big American corporations, and their version of agricultural engineering, their version of agricultural technology. And if we don't, we're all going to die of overpopulation, of overburdening the planet. So this creates a moral scare. And in time, that moral scare makes its way to the World Bank, where in 1974, in a World Bank with McNamara as its president. The U.S. Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the bank publishes a document called Bank Policy on Land Reform, which recommends an end to all programs supporting small farmers around the world. 
So henceforth, the World Bank will be happy to underwrite loans supporting industrial agriculture, but no more will they support the idea of small is beautiful. No more will they support small-scale farmers. There will be an end to land ceilings. Henceforth, there will be only land floors, a minimum size for farms. And this comes in the, the wake of an agreement in 1968 where the World Bank essentially yanks funding from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations without control, direct control over its own budget. The FAO is no longer allowed to make its own plans for the developing world. It can't orchestrate its own surveys any longer, its own bibliographies. It can't make large global plans. Uh, it can only really assist when member nations call for its services. So the FAO is is dwindling. The World Bank is running the show. The World Bank has taken this sharp, sharp turn in the direction of free market economics. And this is the period of time when we, when we start to see the rise of what the World Bank calls free market land reform. Free market land reform is we send in surveyors, we send in lawyers, we make sure that every peasant has a piece of paper that says that they are owner of a piece of land and this enables them to get a loan or sell it more often, sell the piece of property to a larger interest, to an industrial farm, and then move. So the free market land reform is another enabling factor in the mass exodus of farmers from the land to the cities and in the demise of small farming. You write, quote, After the 1970s, the most visible impact of neoliberal ideas was on housing and land policy. Why were the issues of housing and land so central? for the neoliberal reaction. It goes all the way back, you know, to Milton Friedman's first famous text, and I did not know this, his first famous text, the 1946 pamphlet, Roofs or Ceilings, which I think basically argued that rent control was driving post-war housing shortages. And then, of course, this continues all the way through Margaret Thatcher's privatization of public housing in the UK. And it also, in the US, of course, includes American homeowners' tax revolts, the movements that really created a mass base for Reaganism in many ways. Why are housing and land, and why were housing and land, so central for neoliberalism? Yeah, so that's, it's a great question. One of the things that's really important to understand about the, the story of housing and land is we often think about housing and land, housing and agriculture as two very different issues. This is baked into how people study these things in universities and how we talk about them. On the one hand, there's there are urban studies professors studying things like homelessness or affordable housing, but it's all in cities. They're studying slums and gentrification. And then way on the other side of campus, you have anthropologists who are studying rural life or rural sociology, or agricultural economics. You, maybe you have a rural studies program. And that's supposed to be studying old-fashioned people and their ways of building barns and organizing agricultural labor. So we tend to talk about these two issues as if they're totally distinct. On the other hand, what do they have in common? They have in common the fact that whether you're farming a piece of land or you're building a house on it, it's a piece of land. And the price of that piece of land becomes unaffordable in the same way. It becomes unaffordable as the result of financial speculation. So demand, not necessarily from 
more people who want to live in a place, but very often because there are investors who want to buy and resell the property at a greater value. So the story of the log land war is in many ways a, the story of a drama between two visions of how the land market should work. One of these visions, I hesitate to call it socialist, but it's a, it's a vision of uh, an understanding of land that is informed by social movements going back to anti-colonial movements in the 19th century in places like India and Ireland and Mexico. And this is a, an understanding of land that says the people who live in a place should have a protected right to stay in that place, a right to be free of displacement. So that means they should be able to grow their food in a place. They should be able to have houses in a place. And then there's a different orthogonal position which doubles down on lock and single owner proprietorship, which says the person with a contract to own a piece of property should have the right to evict anybody and to raise the rent and raise the market value of the piece of land like any other piece of property. If I had a car, I should be able to sell it to the highest bidder. If I have a piece of land, I should be able to sell it to the highest bidder. Tenants be damned. So that pure market perspective becomes a subject of agitation for some libertarians in London at the end of the Second World War. They see themselves as at a um, marked disadvantage because after the Second World War, the community right to build housing is a subject of Labour Party consensus in Great Britain. We've already been talking about how it's the subject of consensus in virtually every post-colonial nation. We're going to reverse the sins of empire by making sure that ordinary people have a right to land in nations around the world. So the libertarians in London who start to get together to devise a critique of this begin by the 1960s to organize themselves into the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. And they actually start they start off as an ideological movement in search of data. So they know that they don't like bureaucracy and they know that they want the rights of landlords to be superior to the rights of people who just live in a place, tenants or squatters. But they don't have a lot of evidence. So they actually start writing letters to every construction firm and real estate firm in Great Britain asking, can you tell us about ways that bureaucracy has harmed you? And they start getting these answers back. And they create a whole data set of examples of instances where a construction firm had to delay delay building on a, on a housing site in London for a number of years because of, of bureaucracy. Well, it turns out, you know, the bureaucracy is really hard on all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons. And if you ask corporations for examples, they'll come up with examples. The IEA starts packaging these examples in a series of political pamphlets from 1963 to 1965. They start circulating it and building up the message that red tape is what's crippling London's housing and land policies. They start propounding the message that, that bureaucracy is a plague on the building of housing and that if only all of the prohibitions on building housing were removed, then there would be plenty of housing for everyone. 
Now, this is in the midst of a housing crisis in the 1960s. There's a, a famous documentary, which is kind of an anchor for the, the moment. That's Kathy Come Home, which follows the story of a young woman and a young single mother who's looking for a house. And she's evicted from place after place. And she can't afford the housing that's available. I mean, it's, you know, in many ways, it's familiar to many people in the world today who are living through new housing crises. But, of course, nowadays we appreciate that in the free market world in which we live, it's, it's simply not the case that if, if people can build housing, there's an infinite supply of housing and everyone will be accommodated. So the IEA and its allies, in, both in Great Britain and in North America, begin to press for free market reforms on the property market that will allow more housing to be built, that will allow rural land to be bought and sold freely. This is what the the World Bank starts to push from 1968 forward. And so by the end of the 1970s, we're living no longer in the era of state-built housing and state-backed land redistribution. Now we are living in a new era, the tale of the long land war. We are living in the era of free market land reform in which we trust markets to provide all the housing that tenants need in cities in which we trust free markets to distribute land to farmers. And it, it, creates, it creates huge populations who are not adequately housed. It creates a number of pressures on small farmers around the world. And it removes all of the supports that were built up in the 1950s and 1960s through agencies like the Food and Agriculture Organization. You write, quote, We have inherited a planet remade by squatters. As a phenomenon of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, the global rise of urban squatting has taken place on a massive scale. In 2003, 72% of Africans and 58% of Indians were squatters, having no secure title to their land. While their particular conditions and movements behind these numbers vary enormously, most squatters around the world today share a common historical background in the mass migration of refugees from international conflict and land seizures related to the Green Revolution. More broadly, they demonstrate how present-day poverty reflects the colonial alienation of land. And strangely enough, you write, squatters became celebrated by everyone from left-wing anarchists skeptical of, of, of the big public housing provided by, by national states to conservative free market advocates, including the World Bank and including neoliberal Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto, who famously argued for the importance of giving squatters title to the land that they occupied. Why was squatting celebrated across the political spectrum the, the way that it was as some sort of idealized model for the postmodern city? Maybe not so much anymore, but why was it? And why in particular was this so attractive on the free market right with De Soto's argument really becoming a, a, a central pillar of, of, of economic consensus? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating story. In this moment in the 1960s, the housing crisis in Great Britain in the 1960s, we start to see this, this really interesting moment where it looks like the left and the right are converging around the principle of squatting. So there have been political squatters in London since the 
the aftermath of the Second World War when Communist Party members start squatting in houses that had been used by the war effort as offices. Workers start reworking the the wiring and the plumbing to make these former government offices habitable. And they're doing this sort of as a as a propaganda effort to advertise the right to housing, to demonstrate that it's ne- necessary that the people need housing to remind the government of its promise of homes fit for heroes, that a broadcast right for housing is something that all of the parties have said that they believe in in the period before the Second World War. And the Communist Party is playing a critical role in this moment. That's right. The com- this is These are efforts led by members of the Communist Party, often by women who are workers. And there are wonderful pictures of these women with their children perched in the windows of the housing that they do not own, that they have revived with their own hands and made habitable. So in a a sense, they're doing a very Lockean thing. They're mixing their labor (laughs) with with the building to make it habitable. And it this is a very fertile moment for the collective imagination of what housing could mean. I mean, is housing just you know, something that the landlords own that I'm begging the state to give to me? Or is housing something that people can collaboratively make together? Are community gardens something that you can collaboratively make together? So all of those ideas, those questions come back in the 60s and 70s as there's another housing crisis. London doesn't have enough housing students and workers start to squat together to lobby for a right to housing for everyone. Colin Ward is a a writer and an urban activist who was an alumnus of those early Communist Party squats. He lived in one of the squats. And he starts drawing attention to self-build movements across Europe, where communities are deciding that they can give a plot of land for not very much money to workers. And workers have skills. They can build their own housing. They can build their own housing up to code. Sometimes they can build housing with shared amenities, uh, room for shared childcare. Sometimes that works out better than housing that's built by state architects. And this idea of housing created by people for the people is very catching. So people in architecture, people at MIT start talking about it. So one of the key texts is Housing by People by John F.C. Turner, published in 1976 with a preface by Colin Ward, which profiles worldwide movements of people building their own houses. So at this point, they're talking not just about communists in London, but also about squatters in Mexico, squatters in South Asia, the slum dwellers of cities like Delhi, who have cobbled together their own housing, often out of found materials. Turner is celebrating these squatters as, in a sense, entrepreneurs, as artists, architects, self-made architects who are remaking the city according to their own values without any help from the government. Now, Colin Ward's sensibility is, frankly, anarchist. So he he's celebrating. He comes from this communist movement that's calling on the government to build housing for everyone. Colin Ward sees the, this housing as a kind of efflorescence of community self-building, communities' abilities to design their own institutions, you know, ultimately to design their own democracy. And to, we don't need 
bureaucracy. We don't need civil engineers. We can do it ourselves. We don't need experts to inform all of it. Maybe government is something that we can do for ourselves. I think these provocations haven't played out entirely. These are still provocations for our time. Do we need all of the experts or can people make their own cities? It's still a great question. But it also feeds into the message of another group of people who would like to challenge bureaucracy, and that's this libertarian caucus. And this libertarian caucus, really at the end of the day, what they want is more power for landlords. They don't want all of the tenant protections, all of the protections that keep the squatters from being evicted. They're not into that. They're really just into doing away with bureaucracy so that landlords can buy and sell at any price, and there's no limit on how much you can sell your piece of property for or how much you can build. They believe that the market will naturally provide as much housing as people need, even if it charges them an arm and a leg, no problem, because it's making the landlords rich. Even if the price of rent goes up and up forever and nobody can pay it, they, they don't really care. They just want to do away with bureaucracy so that they're, they're allowed to buy and build as much as possible. So, so John F.C. Turner becomes a sort of minor celebrity in the libertarian canon at the same time. All of these things are happening at the same time. Colin Ward is writing about anarchism and self-built cities. John F.C. Turner is celebrating the slum entrepreneur, the self-built builder. And at the same time, Margaret Thatcher in 1979 becomes prime minister of the UK and begins a program of privatizing public housing, putting it on the market. So from a certain squint, all of these forces seem to be converging. The left and the right say bureaucracy is wrong. We need more housing. Let's take away bureaucracy in order to provide more housing. But where we land 30 years later is where we are now, where essentially squatting has been made illegal. I mean, it's, you know, in, in London, it's heavily structured through third parties. And, and you can pay to be a squatter. It's really a kind of low-rent housing of last resort in which you have no protections from eviction at the last moment, none of the normal protections of renters of housing, and the property market is allowed to go up and up forever in which there are virtually no restraints on the cost of renting housing in modern cities. So that is that is, this world that we live in is very much the world that's created by Margaret Thatcher, by the IEA, by this libertarian revolution in the 50s and 60s with a sprinkling of what looks like anarchist thought about self-made cities. It's, it's what the two positions have in common is a suspicion of bureaucracy. They mistrust the state. And there are plenty of reasons to mistrust the state. The state is cumbersome. It moves slowly. It takes a lot of information. It's not good at organizing data in the post-war decades. So it is very slow. It's not providing enough housing. But what replaces it is a rapacious property market that eliminates most of the protections of, of rent and of small farmers that were put into place by decades of activists and social movements struggling in the early 20th century and late 19th century. Obviously, we're confronting a deepening climate crisis that, that only exacerbates the injustices caused by agrarian reforms defeat. And it will, in, in many ways, be fundamentally a crisis of mass displacement. How might the history of popular struggles for agrarian reform and the right to occupancy, the right 
not to be displaced. Struggles that have been successful and struggles that have failed, how might they illuminate our way forward? What what can the right to stay or as will increasingly be necessary, the right to move and then be wherever you end up, what might that teach us as we enter a world where hundreds of millions of people may have to move? So the the reality, I'm glad that you're you're ending with this question because it's the most serious question of our time. This will be one of the most serious questions of the 21st century. We're led to expect a world in which at least 70% of the global population is going to suffer massive unplanned disruption of where they live as the result of climate tragedy. So we're thinking about wildfires of the kind that we've already seen. We're thinking about rising ocean levels. We're thinking about floods. We're thinking about hurricanes and tornadoes and other weather events. And and then you add in drought and famine and collateral kinds of political warfare, economic struggles as a result of of those hardships. I think we've already seen the beginnings of this massive movement, but it's going to expand. We were led to expect that it will expand on a dramatic scale. And uh, grappling with that is is going to be a challenge for every major nation state in the 21st century. So I think one of the reasons why it's useful to review the history of struggles over land, over the long durée, over not just decades, but also centuries, which is what my book does in the very beginning. We look back to uh, the Assyrian displacements and then to the evictions of Jews and Muslims in medieval Europe. The tempo of eviction is real. It's a persistent force through human history. But one of the most dramatic disruptions of that beat of constant displacement began in 1881 with the creation of the first land redistribution and rent control laws in Ireland. In the century that followed that 1881 piece of legislation, almost every nation on the face of the earth put into the works some version of land reform. The beneficiaries that I count up in the introduction are the equivalent of today's population of China, They cover a span of the earth, redistributed earth is the size of India, including the Himalayas. So we're talking about really significant changes to benefiting who is allowed to stay in place, who is allowed to have a piece of land, which land was redistributed through the century of that legislation. One of the things that we learn about the governance of land is that it's really difficult. It's a difficult, naughty economic problem. And it's a, it's a problem of managing technology and managing information. Because if you want to support the livelihoods of many, many small farmers staying in place, not being displaced, they're going to need information about prices. They're going to need information about seeds and about weather. They might need irrigation. They might need roads and railroads. They need all sorts of infrastructure connection. They definitely need some information about the soil. And creating the kind of bureaucracy that can serve farmers or small householders around the entire world to help people stay in place, to back up 
that right not to be displaced. It's a problem. It's an information problem of an immense scale. But it's at a scale that we've tried before. The United Nations started building a global information system capable of telling us about every small farmer, every small householder around the entire face of the earth. We started building it over half a century ago. So it's also not an intractable problem. It's not a problem that we have no experience with. We have had international government organizations charged with the problem of protecting people from eviction for over half a century. Taking that seriously means getting a little bit more real about climate change and climate disaster and what it spells for the people of the earth. Because, you know, it's one thing to read the IPCC reports and review the meetings, which have no no binding power over member nations. It's one thing to go to a march and say, we would really like this nation to change and to restrict carbon emissions. But if we are in relationship to climate disaster where we think we are, there's going to be tens of millions of people displaced by major disasters year upon year in the coming decades. And we're going to need to imagine some kind of information infrastructure at scale that can accommodate those people, that can accommodate a right to housing, a right to a piece of land where you can pursue a trade, maybe cultivate some of your own food. We're going to have to imagine an infrastructure to help support those people with the information that they need in order to acquire property, in order to live in a place, in order to build up a community. Or we're going to be overwhelmed by a refugee crisis of an astonishing scale. So designing a bureaucracy like that or an information infrastructure is more ambitious than designing Google from scratch. It means a really worldwide undertaking. Now, we have some amazing precedents in the work of the United Nations and the FAO in decades past. And we also have a lot of information about what it means for international organizations like that to be susceptible to a coup from a member nation like the United States that says, oh, I don't like that. I really want to make my corporations rich. We saw that in the 1970s with the World Bank under Robert McNamara. We can design international bureaucracies which can protect people from displacement, which are not as vulnerable to attack by an errant member nation as the foul was in the 1970s. But this, this is going to require a great deal of imagination a great deal of global imagination about what a bureaucracy is or what a government is and what it could be, taking seriously these unanswered questions of the 20th century, like does an international information infrastructure have to be a bureaucracy led by experts who are privileged of a certain class in education? Or is there a possibility of designing a democratic, participatory information infrastructure that can provide services and housing and land to the Earth's people that can do land reparations and provide something to benefit the displaced, but can do so in a participatory way that that validates the diversity of identity positions and positions with regards to privilege. We have to be willing to have thought experiments that are constructive if we're going to secure the value of occupation, occupancy rights, democracy, and participatory governance into the next century.
Well, Joe Goldie, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Daniel. It's a real privilege to be here with you. Joe Goldie is a professor of quantitative theory and methods at Emory University and the author of The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the common ownership of land may serve as the starting point for communist development. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also please leave a moment to rate and review us, or also same on other apps too. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling people to check out the pod, whether on the internet or in real life. Tell people to check us out. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Huge.